A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Telegraph Podcasts I'm Francis Dernley, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss reports of huge battlefield casualties on the front lines and cover a cluster of significant political updates, including the latest on fighter jets, the destabilization of the Balkans, the impact of the Turkish earthquake, and the mystery of a Ukrainian reservoir being slowly emptied by Russian forces. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 13th of February, day 355, and with me to discuss the very latest military and political updates is The Telegraph's Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes and our Rome correspondent Nick Squires, calling in from Belgium and Italy, respectively. I started by asking Joe, fresh from a press conference by NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, about speculation over the weekend that Russia is struggling to launch its much-anticipated offensive in eastern Ukraine. Good afternoon, folks. Yes, just uh, you're right. I'm just out for a press conference with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, but more on that later. Yeah, so let's start with the start of this kind of huge, large-scale Russian offensive that we've all expected, and Ukraine's been warning about, NATO allies have been warning about. And let's be clear, it has started. So Alexei Danilov, he's the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defence Council over the weekend, he said Russia are having big problems with with an offensive. And so I've heard from NATO intelligence officers that they believe the Russian offensive is not likely to come in one enormous push all along the front line. It will likely be in concentrated areas, small pockets of activity across parts of the front line. And it's still not exactly clear what Russia is planning, but we think they are doing something big to coincide with the one-year anniversary, which comes in about 11 days. And it's being described to me as a process rather than a single event. But I think what has become stark now is there's been a lot of warnings about the Russian tactics, and that is sort of World War One style, throwing large numbers of men at one defensive location in the hope of overwhelming them. They don't care about casualty rates. They are just basically throwing more and more men into the meat grinder. Um, and say, following kind of Alexei Danilov's reflections, we have sort of had warnings from, or kind of not warnings, but insight from the Ministry of Defence, Britain's Ministry of Defence, that is that Russia has likely suffered its highest rate of casualties of the war so far in the past two weeks. And that 
firstly points towards an uptick in activity, which kind of signals the start of this offensive. And according to some sort of available statistics, Russia is losing up to 800 troops a day at the moment. That's a kind of a vast amount to be losing if you're doing that over a month, uh, two months, three months, no matter how long this offensive goes on, you can't sustain that sort of casualty rate at kind of a, a healthy, it's not a healthy figure to be doing, to be chasing. So as we drill down into the conflict, we're actually kind of seeing a lot of that fighting is concentrated on Bakhmut, the Donetsk town that has been heavily fought over for kind of eight or nine months now. Russian forces seemingly over the weekend inch closer towards controlling it by taking a village on the outskirts. They took, according to Wagner, they took Krasnogora, a village on the northeastern edge of Bakhmut, or northern edge of Bakhmut, really, um, which kind of suggests that they are Russia is inching closer towards actually being having a presence inside the city rather than just the occasional occasional sort of fight there on the outskirts. So we obviously can't verify these claims. Wagner obviously take them with a pinch of salt. Ukraine says the fighting remains fierce there and has reported that Russia has hit more than two dozen nearby settlements with tank rounds, mortar rounds and artillery fire. And then in another reflection that demonstrates the brutality of the fight over Donetsk, which is one half of the Donbass, which is what we believe is the likely target of the Russian offensive. We believe the West with Western intelligence, Ukrainian intelligence, that Russia is likely going to push towards to take the entire eastern Donbass region and fully control that. But yeah, so going back to this, citing Ukrainian military officials, they have suggested that Ukrainian forces in Volodar, which is about 100 miles southwest of Bakhmut, have destroyed the entire brigade of Russia's elite 155 naval infantry. The brigade totaled up to around five thousand soldiers russian soldiers who were either killed wounded or captured and they uh, kind of the sources quoted in this politico piece suggest that russia was losing between 150 and 300 troops a day in that area and that again that speaks towards sort of the, the higher casualty rates and the higher effort that russia is putting in to try and capture smallish towns in the donetsk region so the report also totaled that in the last week or so, 130 pieces of Russian hardware, including 36 tank units, had been destroyed or damaged. Elsewhere, according to Ukraine's general staff, Russia has carried out attacks on at least seven regions, Donetsk, Kherson, Kharkiv, Sumy, Nikolaev, Zaporizhia and Luhansk, over the past 24 hours, killing four people and injuring three more. According to Kherson, the Kherson region the military administration, this includes the southern Oblast being hit 42 times by Russian forces using multi-launch rocket systems, mortars, tanks and rockets. Three people were killed in, in, in Kherson. Ukraine has repelled a number of Russian attacks on the southern Zaporizhia region over the last 24 hours. In this morning's Ministry of Defence intelligence briefing, they said Russia is likely bolstering its defensive lines in Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia is partly uh, occupied by Russia. It was part of, it was one of the regions that was a kind of so apparently annexed as part of these Russian attempts to kind of cement control over occupied regions, but it's still very much being fought over. So British military officials wrote a major Ukrainian breakthrough in Zaporizhia would seriously challenge the viability of Russia's so-called land bridge linking Russia's Rostov region and Crimea. But then if you look at kind of what the Russian narrative uh, 
is at the moment. So Russia on Monday, that's today, said its troops had pushed forward a few kilometers along the front lines in Ukraine. Uh, it said the Russian, the Ministry of Defense said the Russian servicemen broke the enemy's resistance and advanced several kilometers deeper into its echeloned defense. So that's about 1.2 miles is the kind of estimate. So it does show that Russia is making progress in times, if you believe them, but it's it's, it's very grinding progress. It's really a war of attrition. It's really being it's being fought over meters rather than miles at times. And then there's other one one more thing that I will conclude on, which I'd like to mention, which was over the weekend. Um, one of our correspondents, James Kilner, wrote a piece about it. You can see online, but I will shortly kind of bring it together. So over the weekend, we saw this kind of fascinating Russian attack on what is described as a key bridge in Ukraine. Video of the attack showed a a kind of a boat, a vessel speeding towards the kind of the low-lying Zatoka Bridge. It's a railway and road drawbridge near Odessa late on Friday. As this vessel boat passes under the bridge, the boat explodes, debris fly into the water, smoke billows over. So Western analysts have warned that Russian drone boats now pose a major new threat to Ukrainian supply lines and can threaten the control of the Black Sea as a as a sort of weapon that's being used. We've seen we've seen one of these wash up in Crimea before, which was apparently a Ukrainian vessel. It's been suggested that they've been used by Ukraine to hit targets around Crimea and coastal kind of targets around Russia and Russian controlled areas. So it's it's not a new kind of idea to be using a water based drone to strike behind enemy lines, but I think it's fascinating that to see that Russia has now employed them or deployed them as a tactic. And um, I will stop there for now and hand it back over to you, Francis. Well, thank you for that very comprehensive overview, Joe. Just before I turn to the first of our major diplomatic stories today, just one question for you, which is we're talking about the unprecedented Russian casualties that we're hearing. I'm just wondering if we're getting any sense or if you've seen anything suggestive of what kind of losses the Ukrainians are suffering as a consequence of the beginning of this Russian offensive. So that that is a no. So... The Ukrainians have made a concerted effort not to publish any details on casualty rates. Their Western allies have also respected that idea and have refused to speculate on how many Ukrainian casualties, but estimates have put them at the same numbers as Russians. Russia, if not a little bit lower, basically because they have fewer men on the ground and probably they are fighting from well dug in positions. But I remember being in Ukraine in October, November, as the Herson offensive raged on, and we were visiting kind of hospitals and and speaking to frontline medics, and 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 they they would say that look, we can treat between two hundred and three hundred patients a day, casualties on the front line at the kind of the highest rate of fighting. As as they were trying to thrust in to Russian held positions, the the casualty rates would get higher. So look, we can we can expect. Ukraine is probably largely on the defensive at, mo- at, the mo- at the moment, so it's probably not sustaining as many. But as soon as they start to launch counter-offensive and their own offensive operations, that that number will increase. So we don't know largely the amount, but previous kind of estimates have put it at fifty to sixty thousand casualties. I thought that was a fair while ago. So you can you can put that Ukraine is also suffering a higher casualty rate, and the the questions will one day arise: when will they run out of manpower to? fight the Russian invasion if Vladimir Putin continues to mobilise hundreds of thousands of troops without a kind of caring, a care for their welfare and just happy to throw them into the meat grinder. One day that, that will come to a head. 
Well, thank you, Joe. We're staying on the military theme, but shifting to the political and diplomatic space. The biggest development this morning is that Poland, of course, one of Ukraine's closest allies, has cast doubt on whether the country will get the Western fighter jets. It was seen over the weekend that actually Poland might be the country that's the first to really move on this, as opposed to uh, to Britain or France. But Poland have, it's actually come directly from President Duda. He told the BBC on Sunday that sending jets was a very serious decision, that's a direct quote, and not easy to take. He said that Poland didn't have enough jets to send it by itself and noted that combat aircraft have high maintenance needs, which would pose a substantial challenge. So no doubt that is a blow to Ukraine. And that's why I'm leading on it in the diplomatic space today, because it's something we're also leading on on the paper, because there's a lot of conversations happening about it as we speak. The Polish president also had a message for Vladimir Putin. He said that sooner or later it has to finish badly for him. If the Western democracies, NATO, the European Union, together with the United States, give permanent support to Ukraine, then Vladimir Putin has to lose. And sooner or later it will mean he falls. So very strong words from him. But there have been some other noteworthy remarks from European politicians over the weekend. And I want to come to Nick Squires, our Rome correspondent now, Our old friend Silvia Berlusconi, Nick, seems to have caused something of a furore in Italy by certain comments about Ukraine. What's happened? Indeed, that's right. Good afternoon. Silvio Berlusconi up to his old tricks, coming out with pro-Moscow and an anti-Ukraine message. This was last night in response to questions from reporters. He, he essentially blamed Ukraine for prolonging the war needlessly by engaging with the Russians militarily in the Donbass. And Mr. Berlusconi referred to those two regions of the Donbass as as autonomous regions. So pretty much single-handedly recognizing them as Russian. He, He said of Mr. Zelensky, I judge very, very negatively the behavior of this gentleman. He suggested, Mr. Berlusconi suggested, that the war could be brought to an end within days if the West came up with a package worth billions of euros or dollars of post-war reconstruction aid for Ukraine, but made that contingent on Ukraine pushing for an immediate ceasefire with the Russians. Now, this has caused a a bit of a political storm in Italy, as you can imagine. Just to remind people, Mr. Berlusconi is the leader of a party which is in alliance, in coalition with Giorgia Maloney, the prime minister, and with with another party led by Matteo Salvini. So they're all in this together, a centre-right coalition governing Italy. The prime minister's office had to put out a clarification within hours of uh, Mr. Berlusconi's remarks, essentially saying, no, we're rock solid with the Western alliance and in support of Ukraine. But meanwhile, of course, opposition politicians in Italy uh, criticising Berlusconi for what he said, saying it's irresponsible, it's extremely serious. One uh, opposition party leader accusing him of pro-Putin ravings. And of course, Mr Berlusconi has got uh, form on this. He, He had a very close relationship with Putin for many, many years. And just back in the autumn, just before the the centre right coalition was elected, he again embarrassed Georgia Maloney and his allies by saying, by announcing gleefully that he'd received a case of vodka as a birthday present from President Putin and what he called a very sweet letter from Mr. Putin as well. 
Yes, I remember we covered that at the time. Quite extraordinary uh, things to say, given the context. Thanks for that, Nick. Now, you've also written a detailed piece with regard to the Balkans, somewhere we've been keen to discuss more frequently on the podcast. What's the latest there? Yeah, so I'm just back from Kosovo, from an assignment to Kosovo. Um, And the context there is that there's been months of tension between Kosovo and Serbia, and specifically in the north of Kosovo, which is dominated by ethnic Serbs. There's about 50,000 ethnic Serbs who live in the north of Kosovo, who very much don't recognise Kosovo as a country and would much rather be with neighbouring Serbia. There's been some violence, there's been barricades set up between Serbs and ethnic Albanian police. Shots were fired in the last month or so. Serbia at one point said it wanted to send its troops into northern Kosovo. And I went to Pristina, to the capital, to interview the president of Kosovo, the Osa Osman. And she told me that the Kosovans believe that not only are the Serbs stirring up trouble, as they see it, but that the Serbs are now acting in league with the Wagner group, the Russian group of of mercenaries. The specific allegation from the president to me was that Wagner and Serbian paramilitaries are illegally smuggling weapons and unmarked uniforms from Serbia into northern Kosovo as apparently laying the groundwork for some sort of hybrid operation or, or some sort of annexation of northern Kosovo. And of course, this evokes parallels I think, with Crimea in 2014, the famous little green men, the soldiers in unmarked uniforms who were running around and who turned out later, of course, to be Russian and who laid the the way for the Russian annexation of Crimea. So this has the potential to be quite a big story. I mean, what, what is the perspective on the severity of the Russian involvement in this in terms of working with the Serbian government? I mean, is it is this a sort of small scale operation or is there actually evidence this is quite a substantive arm of, of what Russia wants to be doing to destabilise Europe more broadly? Yes, well, I mean, certainly we found out in the last month or so that Wagner has started recruiting or trying to recruit Serbs for its war in Ukraine. That, that's something that's on the record. When I pressed the president of Kosovo a little bit more on numbers and whether any alleged, alleged Wagner mercenaries had actually come onto Kosovan territory, she said that's still under investigation. Um, so hard, hard to say specifically up in northern Kosovo exactly what that role is. But certainly, generally, it's been a narrative, a familiar narrative for some years now that Russia sees an easy place to destabilize in the Western Balkans. And some people would say that it uses Serbia, its longtime ally, as a proxy for those sorts of things. The president of Kosovo saying to me, this is not just about us. This is not just Kosovo, Serbia. This is a much broader issue in the Balkans that involves Russian interference in Montenegro, in North Macedonia, and in Bosnia-Herzegovina. So her contention and, and many other people is that Russia sees in the Balkans a, a means to divert the West's attention from the war in Ukraine and also to stir up so much trouble between Balkan nations that it will impede 
their path towards EU and NATO membership. Thank you, Nick. Well, this is something that's really, really interesting and topical for everything that's going on at the moment. And to listeners who have not yet heard the interview that we did with Dr. Ivana Stradner, which was live, I think, a few weeks ago, I would highly recommend that I'm sure if you do a Google search for Ukraine, the latest and her name, that you'd be able to find it. It was a really interesting discussion as part of that about the disinformation effort efforts of the Russians in the Balkans and it speaks to what Nick, Nick has just been talking about in a little bit more detail there. So there, we'll come back to Nick at the end for his final thoughts but there are just a few other political updates that I wanted to draw attention to today. The first is there's been continuation of Zelensky uh, sacking senior figures who may be implicated in corruption. This is part of his drive to clean up the government at this critical state of the war. We understand that he's dismissed the deputy commander of the National Guard and this is following a brief decree issued by the presidential office as part of this initiative to clean up the government um, in the coming weeks and months. There's been no reasons that have been given for the move but it was quite noticeable I thought the number of uh, political figures who commented both in Brussels and in Britain on Zelensky's efforts to clean up corruption in Ukraine. Clearly, this is seen as the central pillar of Zelensky's strategy on keeping the West on side, but also an attempt to rebuild Ukraine's future and the kind of country that it wants to be. So this will be something that no doubt, again, we'll be returning to because it does seem to be an authentic and genuine policy of the Zelensky government to clean this up. Turning away from Ukraine and looking more into Russia, however, it's been quite interesting seeing that the United States this morning has told its citizens still in Russia to leave immediately amid the heightened fears of the Russian offensive in Ukraine. I'll read their statement from the embassy. US citizens residing or travelling in Russia should depart immediately. Exercise increased caution due to the risk of wrongful detentions. Do not travel to Russia. So pretty blunt remarks there, I think it's fair to say. And obviously this speaks to concerns about what the political environment may well be in Russia if the offensive perhaps begins to falter. There may be foreign dignitaries, foreign individuals who are arrested as an attempt to detract from the offensive there. So something I speak, again, for us to remain sensitive to. Joe spoke about the Wagner Group earlier on. And there's also been another interesting development on this written again by James Kilner, who I'm sure we'll have on the podcast again soon, which is about how the Kremlin has reportedly ordered Russian propagandists not to promote Prigozhin and the Wagner Group. So apparently this is an attempt by the Kremlin to sort of censor some of the coverage that Wagner has been getting in the West. Of course, we've covered them extensively on this podcast and in our newspaper, as have many other outlets. And I think perhaps the Kremlin are becoming increasingly sensitive to the fact that this is actually doing them great reputational harm, if indeed um, that's the right way of thinking about it with regard to Russia. But yes, so the story is, is that Effectively, that the Kremlin has been publishing this sort of guidelines, really, for 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 Russian propagandists in the, in the internet space of the kind of messaging that they want to be putting out. And of course, Wagner has been central to that in terms of the promotions that's been made on Russian Telegram channels, some of which have half a million subscribers or more. But this, there's been this deliberate fr- initiative sent down from on high individuals receiving direct orders from the leadership um, saying that essentially this should stop, this should cease. And 
trying to analyse as to the exact reasons why this is the case. It's believed that there's been anger within the Kremlin of the outward criticisms from individuals in the Wagner group, particularly Brigozhin, about the Russian strategy and calling for themselves to receive more military um, emphasis, to give them more resources in order to be fighting. But of course, that's exactly what, uh, what Russia did. And the Wagner group has not had those huge gains, those huge successes in Bakhmut and, else, and elsewhere where they've been, in, where they've been engaged. They've, made, they've taken extensive losses. And I think this is an attempt by Moscow to reduce their influence not only in the in the news, the Western news analysis of the war, and obviously their brutal tactics is something we've spoken about at length, but also to, in a sense, put Wagner back in their box and to make it clear that actually this is a, this is a Russian military-led operation and not a private contractor one. So that's quite an interesting development and one we will, I'm sure, return to. But I just wanted to conclude in the political space with looking at a, a concerning story which is that specialists from Russia's defence ministry are building a water pipeline that would connect the country's Rostov region bordering Ukraine with the Donbass. Now, we're hearing this from TAS, the news agency. They reported this late on Sunday night. And apparently Moscow are in, investing very, very heavily in this project to be completed in the next few months. We'd have the capacity to carry 300,000 cubic metres of water per day and would include two 200-kilometre lines. There are apparently more than 2,600 specialists involved in this from the Russian military defence and over 1,000 units of equipment being enrolled around the clock in construction. But as I say, the significance is that it will pass through the territory of the Rostov region in Russia and into the Donetsk region. So why? Why are they doing this? Well, for one, of course, it's clear that they want to have uh, more um, influence in those regions and, and to show that they're here to stay. I think that's the biggest one. But also it does speak, I think, as well to um, concerns about the um, broader strategy of the Russian military and how they need to be uh, accessing more res- specific resources, whether it be water or other things. And to touch on this, I'm very grateful to a listener who I won't name, who's a meteorologist, but has been updating me and and I'm sure several other journalists on what's going on around a, a huge reservoir in Ukraine. And there's been some coverage on this over the weekend, so I think I can talk about it a little bit more now. It's M- NPR that have covered this. And it's essentially this reservoir is being emptied of water, believed to be being emptied by the Russians because it's in their controlled territory. The consequence of this is that it would imperil drinking water, agricultural production and safety at Zaporizhia, of course, the nuclear power plant. Now, I, don't, I won't go into all of the, the detail of this, but in essence, water has been gushing out of this reservoir, um, the Kakhovka, since November 2022. And... We know this due to satellite data that shows that the water level at the reservoir has plummeted to its lowest point in three decades. And as I say, what's at stake here is the drinking water for hundreds of thousands of residents, irrigation for nearly half a million acres of farmland, and perhaps most significantly, the cooling system at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Now, we don't know if that is the main motivation for this. But there is speculation that it is. The other piece of speculation is that, and this is the one I should say that's been posited by the Zaporizhia Regional Military Administration, is that they are draining the reservoir as part of a plan to flood the area south of the dam in an effort to keep Ukrainian forces from the crossing the Dnipro 
river. As I say, it's all speculation at this stage, but of course it's a huge concern when you've got a reservoir of this size essentially flooding enormous territory. And we have, of course, numerous examples from history, as we've talked about on the podcast previously, where you have reservoirs that are broken in war deliberately or accidentally, and the huge consequences of that, not only at the time, but also for years and years afterwards. It totally changes the the, the landscape in ways that can take decades to recover. So we will be returning to this again, I'm sure. But I just wanted to flag it today as part of this broader conversation that we're having around Russia's attempts to cement its control of those territories that it currently does. And indeed, part of that, unfortunately, is destroying or damaging or harnessing Ukrainian infrastructure. Joe, just to return to you before we conclude today, I understand there's one more story that you wanted to discuss relating to the plan to ramp up shell production for Ukraine. Yeah, so I think this is a, it's a really interesting and probably one of the most important things that we have to consider at the moment in terms of support for Ukraine. So a lot of the kind of talk and public bluster has focused around fighter jets and tanks. But when President Zelensky travelled to the UK, he went to Paris and then came on to Brussels, and his appeal for weapons, yes, it did mention tanks, it did mention fighter jets, but he, he he and his officials really focused on the fact that they need 155 millimeter artillery shells. And as a result of that, and it's no kind of surprise or shock to many people that there is a, a now a growing shortage of those in Europe because of what's happened in terms of support for Ukraine. And so there was an interesting sort of plan was put forward by the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas, and she suggested that Europe should be rushing to launch a COVID-style plan to ramp up shell production. And this was after Vladimir Zelensky personally was told by EU leaders in a meeting that, and this is a quote, we don't have much in our warehouses to give you. Um, so it's been the kind of European governments have backed this. So we, as we know, Germany have backed it, Sweden have backed it. I'm sure France will come on because it has a kind of a large military industrial complex. But what, what Kayakalis is essentially proposing is that Europe adopts the same scheme that it had for COVID vaccines, where procurement efforts are centralised inside the European Commission. So experts sort of pull knowledge and finances, essentially, in order to place huge orders that will enable manufacturers to ramp up production because that's one of the problems at the moment is manufacturers in europe and i'm sure in america and elsewhere have been told they need to ramp up production of artillery shells and other weapons to support ukraine and to replenish stocks inside the west but as far as we can tell not many countries have placed orders which is basically these firms have said well if you're not going to place orders we will not risk spending the money to increase our production capabilities so so Kaya Callas basically said, look, if we can get the commission to start placing orders and the commission placed orders for billions and billions of coronavirus jabs, and that enabled vaccine producers to ramp up their production as a result. And she's saying the same thing could be used to push for artillery. So obviously there's no guarantee. I've received a lot of emails and messages from Eurosceptics over the weeks or over the days over the days and hours since the story was published it's published in the sunday telegraph and they were saying oh but hang on the eu's coronavirus vaccine rollout was very slow and yes that's that was right as of as of the start once they've started or stopped fighting with britain over kind of our rollout 
and decided that they should focus efforts on trying to convince manufacturers to ramp up production. It actually went very successfully. And at, at certain points, Germany was giving out over a million jabs a day, which kind of was a, was a huge number and a huge success, considering the amount of kind of people they have in their country. But there's a few other warnings. Yes, that is one thing that needs doing, but also NATO is also trying to engage with industry to convince them to ramp up production. So Jens Stoltenberg today in the press conference I was in, he warned that delivery times of certain high-caliber ammunition have increased to 28 months, and that was up from from 12 months previously. And he has warned and said the uh, NATO alliance is in a race of logistics against Russia to get crucial supplies to Ukraine. And some of the figures that kind of intelligence people have told me over the last few days is Ukraine fires 6,000 artillery shells a day. Russia fires 20,000 artillery shells a day. The current production capacity of European kind of artillery shell production is 20,000 shells a month. So what what Russia is firing in a day is being produced in Europe in a month. So supplies are literally dwindling. The current rate of ammunition consumption is higher and bigger than the current rate of production. So we, we, we can't sustain Ukraine and we can't make sure that we are able to protect ourselves if we carry on like that. So Kaya Kalik's idea of kind of having one centralised group of European countries, it could include Britain. So British officials have spoken out and said, you know what, that could work. It's, it's a good idea. And anything that helps Ukraine is a good thing, as long as it doesn't interrupt with other kind of international efforts at NATO or other other platforms. It's a good thing. So basically they're, they're saying that, look, we can create a pool of funds to place an order big enough for shells that will convince manufacturers to up their production rate. And that's that's quite crucial. And I'll stop there because I know we're kind of running short on time. We are, Joe. Thanks for that. Just one more question, if I could, to you. You obviously were in that conference with Jens Stoltenberg before we came on air. Just wondering if there were any other insights that came out of that. So Jens Stoltenberg, interestingly, he acknowledged the threat that Chinese weather balloons have posed to the posed to the alliance, not just in the US and Canada, but also in Europe, where there have been reports of not sightings, but some sort of activity over the last few years. He again sort of said on back on support for Ukraine, he he didn't rule out fighter jets, but kind of he skirted around the idea of them being given and said, look, it takes time and what we need to do now is sort of do things very quickly, but he says speed saves lives which goes against the normal speed kills uh, road traffic accident adverts that we see in warnings. And he also acknowledged that the start of the counteroffensive has happened and he didn't say it was all in one kind of massive go, but he alluded to there has been an uptick in activity and an uptick in the disregard Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin has for its troops that have been sent to Ukraine, kind of alluding to that idea that Russia is willing to descend its men to the death in the hope of overwhelming Ukrainian positions. But um, largely, he spoke out more in support of Ukraine. He said NATO allies should do more. And he said that is depend like protecting Ukraine also protects us in NATO. And then he also devoted a fairly large of his time to the earthquake in Turkey and said that NATO support is coming to Turkey, and that is important because he's currently engaged in sort of a diplomatic wrangling over Turkey, letting in Finland and Sweden to become the 31st and 32nd allies in the NATO alliance. So that's that's important kind of wording and context there on that. But that's pretty much what he has to say ahead of tomorrow. There is a Ramstein meeting 
um, one of the US-led meetings on support for Ukraine in Brussels. That's going to involve NATO defence ministers plus more. And then NATO defence ministers are going to get together to discuss Ukraine and then more sort of individual issues such as the defence and deterrence that they have to ensure the protection of the NATO alliance. So that's to come tomorrow and I will be in Brussels and at NATO HQ. So maybe I might jump on if there is space for me. Well, thank you very much, Joe. And of course, we will talk more about China and these balloons in due course the next time that we want to talk about them in the context of Ukraine. I think it's really interesting what you're talking about Turkey as well. There's been a lot of speculation I was reading over the weekend about what the impact of this terrible, terrible earthquake could be on Turkish politics. Of course, Erdogan came to power as a consequence of an earthquake 20 years ago. It sort of totally destroyed the credibility of the then government and Erdogan benefited from that. And the question is, is whether in these elections in May, assuming they go ahead, they may not because it's a state of emergency, whether the there will be electoral implications for President Erdogan. But nonetheless, regardless to what you were saying, Joe, the impact of this from regards to the West and their dealings with Turkey have been quite considerably affected by this. I mean, President Erdogan was consistently prior to the elections trying to sort of stoke up anti-Western sentiment within the country because he knows that plays well electorally. And we've already spoken about that in the past. But now, of course, he is relying on that Western support, the the, the, the financial support, the support in terms of the emergency relief efforts to try and rescue people from buildings. And so this will have consequences. And I think that, you know, if, if he was looking to Russia for support, he's not got any. And that might be something that will have impacts on the question of, of, of Sweden and Finland becoming men, members of NATO in due course. Who knows what kind of conversations are happening behind closed doors? And one could argue that a vulnerable Erdogan is something that actually the West can use to, to leverage things in the coming months. But of course, at the moment, the, the main concern is just the, the rescuing as many people as possible and and helping as many people as possible who have gone through this terrible, terrible um, tragedy. I think it's now upwards of 35,000 people have been killed in Turkey. I mean, just extraordinary high numbers. But anyway, we've run out of time today. So just want to come to you both for your final thoughts. Nick, what do you want to end our listeners with today? I w- I'd just like to add, I suppose, on this, these warnings of some sort of hybrid military action against Kosovo or annexation by Serbia. The big difference, of course, between Kosovo and Crimea is that Kosovo has a NATO presence. K4 or Kosovo force has been in the country for more than 20 years. There are British troops and American troops and many other nationalities serving with them. So that is a huge difference between Kosovo now and Crimea in 2004. And just finally, also to point out that Serbia is very keen or says it's keen to join the European Union. And I think that would also will also act as a break on, on its actions. Well, so thank you very much, Nick, for that. Joe Barnes, I'll leave you there with the final thoughts of the day. Blimey, pressure and, and an honour. I, I would just reiterate that I think when Ukraine is asking for things like fighter jets and tanks, actually you, it, is, it is basically constantly testing the water and asking the West to basically deliver promises. And President Zelensky has been very good at getting promises out of his Western allies. But on the face of it, what we really have to look at is the supply of sort of 155 artillery and kind of those really kind of crucial bits of kit that will help Ukraine in the short term to repel any attacks against it from the Russian forces on this kind of offensive that is due to or has started in the lead up to the uh, in the anniversary on the 24th. And I'll stop there and thank you for listening, folks. 
Thank you very much, Joe. And I have to ask, you're no longer the only one on the podcast to have been sanctioned by Russia. Our very own Dom Nichols has, as he was talking about last week. How does it feel? Oh, <laughs> the burden of Russian sanctions on me. Unfortunately, probably because I've chosen a path as a journalist and not some sort of like rich city banker or something like that. Not, not that they're bad people. Um, I don't actually have enough money to be have datches in Russia or a bank account in Moscow, so I've not actually lost anything. But I'm sure if I one day want to go on holiday to St. Petersburg um, or Moscow, I will probably be stopped at the border and thrown in a gulag because I'm on some sort of travel ban list as a result. But um, it's always amusing. It's nice to know that your reporting sort of raises eyebrows in the Kremlin or their foreign office whenever they are drawing up their kind of Western sanctions list. Before I hand over to David for today's interview, a quick request from me on behalf of all of the team behind Ukraine The Latest. Next week will mark one year since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a year that has witnessed brutality on European soil unseen for decades and which has redefined the geopolitical landscape around the world. We have been covering the war every weekday since then and will continue to do so. But to mark this terrible milestone, we wanted to offer some broader reflections on what all of us, and we include our listeners in that, have seen and learned in that time. To do so, we will be recording a special video version of the podcast to mark the anniversary. This episode will seek to summarise a year of war, but also offer a means for us to discuss some of the deeper questions we don't always have time to cover in our episodes. To help us in this task, we want to hear your more wide-ranging questions about this war. How could it have been prevented? What mistakes got us here? What lessons can we learn? That sort of thing. To do so, please send your questions to ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. Whilst we sadly won't be able to cover them all in our episode, we will read every submission, which will give us a sense of the subjects you are most interested for us to discuss. Thank you again for sticking with us this past year. We wish there wasn't a war we had to report, but for as long as there is, we will continue. And now our regular host, David Knowles, for the second half of this episode. Thanks, Francis. A few weeks ago, I spoke to Professor David Marples. He's Professor of Russian and Eastern European History at the University of Alberta. One of his specialist subjects is the history and politics of Belarus. We've spoken about Belarus a lot on this podcast, and I wanted David to give us a broad overview of Belarusian politics, history, and Alexander Lukashenko. Here's the first part of this special two-part interview. David, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for speaking to us. Before we get going with the questions, could you just give us a sense of your interest in Belarus and your scholarship on it? Where did your interest come from? Well, it came actually from Ukraine. I started by studying Ukraine. My PhD was on Ukraine. I was researching the impact of Chernobyl for some time, actually, and uh, met a group of Belarusians in Washington, D.C., and they invited me to a conference in Belarus. They said that I've been neglecting the impact on Belarus. So I went, I went to a conference there, but I was fascinated by the Republic and decided that perhaps in the 90s, too many people were coming into the Ukrainian field. It was a bit like the Russian field earlier, but too many people were coming into the Ukrainian field and nobody was studying Belarus at all. So I decided to try to produce some kind of 20th century history of Belarus and worked on that for a few years and just kept going back and 
it developed from there. I got very interested in the Stalinist period, but also the modern period. Kushenko was was already president by then. But I talked to some of the government, but mostly I hung around with the opposition because they were much more interesting. And um, I could see eye to eye with them a lot better. So it started from there and just continued, actually, until in 2010, I think it was. I couldn't get a visa anymore. After that, I couldn't get back until 2017. David, you've already mentioned a few things we're going to talk about, I think. So to start off with, we've talked about Belarus a lot in this invasion in the last year as a staging post for Russian attacks, as a training ground for Russian soldiers as well. Before we come to that, can we talk a little bit about the country on its own terms? Could you give us a sort of potted history of modern Belarus? Yeah, I mean, Belarus declared independence in August 1991, a day after Ukraine. But it was a a republic in which the communists had a, a majority in parliament. I think there were 27 or so opposition MPs in there. Initially, most of them affiliated with the Popular Front. And at that time, things were changing very fast in the Soviet Union, not so much in Belarus, but Belarus was following events and and more or less forced down a line of independence. In 1990, Belarusian had been declared the state language of the Republic, really before the language had been developed, but it was declared a state language. And in 1991, in September, Stanislav Shushkevich was made the Speaker of the Parliament and he was the one who took Belarus through into independence and then signed this treaty in Bielobyezhia with the presidents of Russia and Ukraine which formally ended the Soviet Union. After that, Belarus adopted a constitution in spring of 1994 which stipulated that there would be a president. The president would be tempered in power by a constitutional court and a strong parliament And then elections were held in the summer. And in these elections, uh, the main candidate, I would say, was uh, Vyacheslav Kevich, the prime minister. There were some two opposition candidates, Pazniak and Shushkevich. And Lukashenko had been known very briefly as the head of a commission on corruption to investigate corruption. And he gave his report in December 1993. And so it was really just before these elections. So suddenly people knew who he was and they identified him with being anti-corruption, which was a noose that was hung around the party's neck at that time. And, um, or really around the prime minister's neck, I should say, because there was officially no communist party by then. In that election, uh, Lukashenko won 45% in the first round, Kebich uh, 17, and the two let's say, pro-Western Democratic candidates got 23% between them, that is, uh, Pazniak 13 and Shushkevich 10. Interestingly, therefore, together, one of them, if they polled together, one of them would probably have got into the next round. But that didn't happen, so Lukashenko looked the better alternative, and he got over 80% in the second round in July. Nobody knew much about him. The opposition gave him a grace period of 60 days to see what he did. He moved very, very quickly. He started by removing all the newspaper editors that seemed to disagree with him, putting people there who were in his own team. He had a referendum in 95, which changed the state flag, changed the language. He elevated Russian to a state language as well. And in 96, another referendum reduced the power of the parliament. And this was a very controversial period where it looked like he might be impeached. Russia stepped in. Prime Minister Chernomyrdin came to Minsk, negotiated some settlement, but ultimately Lukashenko ended up more powerful. 
Then in 99, he was supposed to be re-elected. There was supposed to be another election in that year. He maintained that the next election would be five years after the referendum of 96 because that had made the constitutional changes. So there was a mock election organized by some people in the Supreme Soviet. In, in that period, in 1999, the head of the parliament fled to Lithuania. He was afraid of what might happen. The deputy chairman of the parliament, Viktor Hanchar, was therefore the legitimate interim leader of Belarus. Uh, he subsequently was kidnapped, disappeared from the streets. Many other people disappeared in that period and were murdered by Ministry of Interior officials. Lukashenko then held an election in 2001, which was not free and fair, and he's continued ever since. I guess one thing I should mention is in 2004, there was a further referendum on whether a president could serve more than two terms in office. This was accepted by over 75%, and since then, there's been no question of Lukashenko keeps serving. He has slowly obliterated independent media, non-government organizations were all audited by the KGB. He's given much power to the KGB and to his security forces. And he's remained in power ever since. In 1999, he signed a union treaty with Russia, with Boris Yeltsin. This had been at a sort of um, earlier stage as a community of nations in 94 after Lukashenko came to power, but it became much more integrated after 2000. In 2002, Putin was already president of Russia, and he told Lukashenko that Belarus could not be treated equally in this union, and that if it wanted to, it could join Russia as another state, as a kind of Western oblast or whatever. And since then, Lukashenko, I think, has realized that he has very limited options in terms of a union with Russia, and it was very quietly put on the back burner. Very little was heard about it after that, until it was resurrected by Putin just before the war began in, in Ukraine. So that's a kind of potted history. I mean, every single election ended in violence, aside from 2015. So from 2001 all the way 2006, 2010, all ended in violence in 2010, I think seven out of nine presidential candidates ended up in prison on the night of the election. Many of them were badly beaten as well. So this is a pretty grim dictatorship that's been developed under Lukashenko. You mentioned earlier that you looked a little bit at the Stalinist period. So I was wondering, you've talked to us about sort of since independence and just before independence. But for those of us who don't know much about Belarus at all, could you just give us a sense of some of the 20th century movements in Belarusian history that we should, we should also consider, we should have in mind? Belarus did declare independence on March 25, 1918. It was still a time when the Germans had pushed into the Russian Empire territory. And so you could say it was really a time when the Russian control was relinquished after the revolutions of 1917. It didn't last very long, but the memory lived on. This is when we saw the white, red-white flag, the Bahania symbols, things like that. Uh, all originated as a state form in 1918, although, of course, they'd been seen even earlier as well. And in the Soviet period, the Soviets took over by force, but Belarus at that time was really a, a rump state. There was an attempt to form what was called a, a Litbela, a combination of Lithuania-Belarus, Bela, 
before the formation of a Belarusian, I'll say Belarusian because that was the form it was used in, Belarusian SSR or Soviet Socialist Republic, which was installed after the independent state. And gradually the territory of this state was expanded by giving it some regions of Russia in the 1920s. And then when the Germans invaded Poland in September 1939, the Soviets came in from the east, occupied eastern Poland, which was divided into a western Belarusian part and a western Ukrainian part, and then joined this part to the rest of the Belarusian SSR, which meant that Minsk, instead of being on the western border, suddenly ended up in the center. Vilnius, which had been a center of Belarusian cultural life, ended up in Lithuania, thanks to Molotov. But the state was much bigger, but it was divided down the middle. And from that point onward, the population rose quite dramatically to somewhere around 9.5, 10 million. In the Stalinist period in the 1930s, there'd been massive repressions against Belarusians. There was the famous night of the poets where more than 100 literary figures were executed on a single weekend. And in 1937-38, this was the worst of the purges period. Mass executions taking place and mass burials. Uh, The best known is the Kuropati site outside Minsk, where uh, Pazniak uncovered that again in 1988, caused a sensation. Uh, The estimated deaths are somewhere between 30 and 100,000 people. And although this one has been uncovered, it was quickly concealed by the regime, which actually tried to put a road right through the burial site and brought bulldozers in, and it was defended for a long time by opposition people, particularly by one of the branches of the Belarusian Popular Front. But that was not the only burial ground. There were every major city in Soviet Belarusia had one of these burial grounds. I visited in 2019, along with a Belarusian colleague, a mass grave near the city of Vitebsk in the northeastern region, and another one in, in Vosha, in just further to the south. Since then, another one has been found in around the city of Homiel in the southeast as well. So these are massive burial sites of NKD victims, which are officially not recognized today. One historian estimated that there were 12 burial sites in Minsk as well. But, you know, so far I haven't seen any evidence of the mass graves there. We just know there were burial sites. Who knows how many people died in this period? But almost immediately afterwards even coinciding with it, really, the Germans invaded. And then you got a period of occupation, which lasted for approximately three years. And along with that occupation, you also got the Holocaust of Belarusian Jews. Something like 600,000 Jews lived in Belarus. Excuse me, less than that. But many, many Belarusians were brought to Belarus from outside, from European centers. So altogether, about 600,000 are estimated to have died in the war on what is today Belarusian territory. There was some collaboration in the war, particularly um, nationalist groups which collaborated with the Germans, a strong partisan movement which became kind of legendary, almost like folkloric, um, by the Lukashenko regime. And these partisans operated blowing up railroads, hindering the German army, which couldn't really 
occupy all the rural parts of Belarus. It did fo they focused on the towns. And of course, many Belarusians ended up in the Red Army and joined the Red Army in its various battles. Operation Bagration was fought on Belarusian territory in June of 1944, and ultimately the liberation. And then after that, in the immediate post-war years, a very grim period where many more people ended up in the Gulag camps, particularly anybody who'd been caught outside the country or who had collaborated, and even people who didn't ended up there. By the mid-50s, there was a kind of, well, de-Stalinization taking place in the Soviet Union. And in, in this period, the partisans were resurrected. And in fact, you got former partisan leaders leading the republic. So Belarus was led by partisan leaders from 1956 to 1980, a very long period of hardline communists, but also very incorruptible communists, people like Pyotr Masherov, who, who was the party leader between 65 and 1980, and then killed in a controversial car crash in 1980 uh, during the Brezhnev period. Uh, a lot of industrialization. Uh, Belarus was known for its agricultural machinery, for its tractors, as it still is. But a small republic lost a lot of people in the war. It's estimated about 1.8 million Today, Lukashenko has raised that to three million because he's completely changed the war narrative, which is might want to talk about later. Very much part of the Soviet scene, and I would say one of the more loyal republics. Uh, then he got hit by Chernobyl in 1986, but you really began to see the effects of Chernobyl by 1990. A massive outbreak of thyroid gland cancer, many cleanup workers dying as well. So it's all together with... Stalinist period, followed by the war, followed by Chernobyl, all dramatic effects, I think, on the development of the Republic. You've just sort of anticipated my next question, which is, after your account of Belarusian history, especially the war years, how does the current regime see and pr present those years? Because we, we have a, a strong idea, I think, of how, for example, Vladimir Putin presents the Second World War. How is it seen officially in, in Belarus? What story do they want to tell? Well, it's changed. I mean, initially it was somewhat similar to that of Russia. But in the 21st century, you began to see more emphasis on Belarusian feats, Belarusian heroism. You had not only sort of things like the defense of Minsk, but the defense of the Brest Fortress in the West. It had become kind of a legend in the Brezhnev period, but in, in the Lukashenko period, you saw many more monuments arising, partisan monuments. For example, on the subway, a partisan monument appeared. I think it was in 1995, you began to see the, the war being used as sort of the main event in the forming of Belarusian identity to the exclusion of virtually everything else. In many Belarusians would go back, let's say, to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which used a form of Belarusian language, Belarusian Bible, for example. You've got many other things as well that could have been used, poets, literary figures, Yanka Kupala, for example, Bikov, uh, who wrote all the war novels, the war stories. But it's been focused exclusively on the Soviet side of things and the victory over the Germans as the defining event in the history of Belarus. And then more recently, it seemed that that wasn't quite enough anymore. And the Holocaust, which has always been neglected by the regime, 
with a couple of exceptions, but only because of outside initiatives for forming monuments, but basically neglected. Today, well, in 2022, it was declared the year of historical memory, and a new narrative was introduced about the genocide of Belarusian people, that the Germans had focused on eliminating Belarusians as a people. And this narrative does not mention any Jewish victims at all. So it served to almost conceal the Holocaust once again, and now focus on Belarusians as being the target of the Germans. And this is simply incorrect. I mean, it's historically incorrect. And there are some Belarusian historians in Israel and elsewhere who've, who've stated, you know, that this is simply not true, that this wasn't the way things happened. Certainly the Belarusians were not treated well. They were used as slave labor. They were sent to Germany in many cases. But there was no formal plan on the part of the Germans to exterminate Belarusians as a people, 100%. It just wasn't there. This has now become the new narrative, and I don't know how convincing it is. But there's certainly been an attempt to come up with something that's completely different from the story about unified Russian, Belarusian, Ukrainian attempts to push out the Germans, etc. That's really fascinating, because I think that leads on to my next question. You've talked us through 20th century and some 21st century history and politics and society in Belarus. And it's clear there are divergent points here between the the Putin narrative and, and other narratives. What is Belarus's sort of geopolitical starting points? What are their guiding principles in foreign policy? And if you could give some examples of that, that would be really good. Today, the the guiding principle is to stand alongside Russia against NATO and against intrusions of the West. And you know, I'm just giving you the sort of official line here, not the opposition Absolutely, line. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And Belarus looks back, say, to events like NATO bombing Belgrade in 1999, formation of the state of Kosovo in 2008, Georgia color revolutions taking place in the late 20th, early 21st century, all as ways to undermine their society and to push Belarus in a Western direction rather than a pro-Russian direction, which they declare is the sort of natural inclination of Belarusian people. And one thing I should have mentioned in the historical side was the fact that in the Soviet period, the national language was was suppressed. Not only was even the alphabet bastardized, if you like, and filled with Russian words in the 1930s, but also Belarusian as a language was virtually absent in the 70s and early 80s, pushed out of schools, pushed out of higher learning educational institutions. So you've in fact got another Russian-speaking state next to the Russian state, and one in which its own language is, is something new to many of its people. And therefore, many many Belarusians have traditionally look to Russia as a kind of mother country and as a friendly country. And I think that's been the case up until quite recently. So geostrategically, you could say when the EU European Union in 2000 and 2008, 2009 formed an Eastern Partnership project, Belarus was brought into it. it. It was a very difficult relationship because the regime itself didn't want to go in that direction. More and more trade began to be developed with the EU. It became the second trading partner after Russia. 
and in some ways the most valuable trading partner given the goods that were coming in. But nevertheless, the regime refused to democratize, it refused to have open elections, it refused to have a free press. And the only thing it would do was occasionally release a few political prisoners to appease the West. There were some groups in Belarus that wanted to go further. For example, the dialogue movement, where there should be a dialogue between the Belarus and the European Union. Some Belarusian intellectuals believed that that was the way to go and that it could happen gradually and gradually the regime would open up. And one of the officials who they quoted was the foreign minister Uladzime Make, who we may realize as a Scottish name from his old ancestry, and maybe they thought that this was the a possibility. But in fact, in 2020, Make just stayed with the government, stayed with the regime, even though most of the foreign ministry officials were deserting, and he proved to be more one of the hardliners. So it didn't work, it never worked, but nevertheless, there were some people who wanted to go in that direction. But gradually... Um, well, you could say in, in certain times it seemed impossible. In 2010, I recall the German and Polish foreign ministers um, would come to Minsk and sort of praise the elections of 2010 had been much better than in 2006. And then suddenly we're faced with all this violence in the square and sort of said, well, we're done. We're, we're, we've done with Belarus. We're not. It's impossible. But then the circle comes around again. And once again, the Europeans start to think, well, maybe they... It could work after all. So I would say there's always been that sort of line that Belarus could go a little bit in the European direction. And Lukashenko, not wanting to be part of Putin's entourage, wanting to act independently, started some, let's say, rhetoric that could be perceived as anti-Moscow, anti-Putin, in the period when Russia started to raise oil and gas prices and refused to take Belarusian dairy products, claiming they were not they were not hygienic enough for, for Russian people. So there was a period where they did seem to be quite far apart. So much so that in, in the elections in 2020, when the Wagner Group, some of the Wagner Group came to Minsk en route to Central Africa, and Lukashenko promptly arrested them because he thought they'd come to, to depose him, to, to get rid of him. And it was only later that uh, it, Lukashenko sort of went jumped right into the Putin camp because he had no alternative. But there was some dissension there. That's all one can say. But for Russia, uh, it was always obvious that Lukashenko was the most preferable figure and that if you removed him, you may get somebody from the opposition and Belarus moving away from Moscow. So so that I would say that was probably the main event where Belarus did seem like they might go slightly in another direction, that Eastern Partnership project. Sweden and Poland were the, were the main initiators of that, but it was the East European Union as a whole. Well, we'll come to Lukashenko's relationship with Putin later, because as, as you touch on and allude to, it's clearly more complicated potentially than some people have thought. But you've mentioned them a, a few times now in, in, in your answers. Can we talk about, and, and you've talked about the official regime line on, on many, many things, but can we talk about the opposition who are the opposition in Belarus? Can you introduce us to some of the main characters? Who, who do our listeners need to know about and, and what are they doing? Yeah, and I would say here you have to distinguish between the op like the traditional opposition, the political parties of the early 90s and early 2000s, and the opposition that emerged in 2020, because they're not the same. It's quite a different sort of group now, even though the official 
the former group is allied with the 2020 group, you could say. In the early period, the first major opposition came from the Belarusian Popular Front, and it was based on the grounds of protecting Belarusian language, symbols and culture, and the sort of memory of people who died in the Stalinist period, particularly at Kurapati. The, the, the new graves were not known about at that time. And they were quite significant in the parliament until, I would say, around 94, 95 in particular, when there were many of them were weeded out. The leader of that group was Zyanam Pazniak, who was a historian and archaeologist. Well, he still is, actually, <laughs> for that matter. But he fled the country in 1996. And the Popular Front, which had been the main opposition party, split into two wings in 1999. Uh, one wing based outside the country with Pazniak, but nevertheless most of its members were inside and it was called the Conservative Christian Party of the Popular Front. And I think we would think of it today as some, something along the lines of a right-wing party, traditionalist party, but also very strong in language and culture and memory. A more moderate group perhaps inside Belarus with Vinsuk Bichoka as the leader initially, although they've changed leaders now, several times. But there were a number of other opposition groups that developed. The Social Democratic Party, there are several different branches, three at one time. I would say two have been very active. One called the Hamada, one called the Social Hamada. Similar names, but they've taken part in elections. And social democracy, I think, is something that's it's where most Belarusians seem to stand. They would be social democratic if you had free elections. You've also got a united civil party, which was led for many years by Anatolia Bechka. He's still around because he was about 30 at the time in the 90s. Now he's about 60. So, I mean, he simply aged with time, but he stayed there among the leading figures, if not the leader. So that's at least five different groups, six if you count two branches of the Nacular Front. There's a women's party, there's been several branches of the Communist Party. For a while, a while, one of the branches of the Communist Party was in the opposition as well. Political parties have never done very well in Belarus. Uh, Lukashenko doesn't like them, they're a nuisance. He's never even had his own party in the parliament. So the parliament tends to be made up of independent figures. Only in 2015, I think it was, so it must have been a little earlier, two independent MPs got elected into the parliament, but they, they were removed in the next election. And occasionally you've had factions developing in the parliament, that is people who get elected as an independent, but then they form a faction in the parliament. But it's never been very effective. But in the 2020 elections, I didn't really want to talk about them now, but there, there was um, a completely different atmosphere in the country. And I think there were several reasons one is that you had COVID, and COVID was never really acknowledged by the regime. So you got thousands of people in hospital, but the regime not taking any action to help them. So people began to form self-help organizations. Sometimes at the city level, the city organizations developed their own vaccines, medicines to deal with Chernobyl and Lukashenko instead of being the sort of Batska, the, the father who looked after his people was looked, after, looked at as someone who completely neglected his people, a little bit like Donald Trump in the United States. 
and it reverberated. I mean, people were really angry with Lukashenko for the way he treated them in that period. You'd also got, for the first time, social media, effective social media, Telegram Channel, Nectar and others, some operating outside the country so that it couldn't be repressed. And younger people having access to this, wanting change. And then, quite suddenly, the emergence of three candidates, out of many, but three candidates who look quite different from your traditional opposition candidates who could be identified with opposition political parties. So two directly from the establishment, Boris Sikhanovsky, a blogger, a vlogger, I should say, well-known on YouTube. He used to, for his Country Life program, he used to go around Belarus interviewing people. He had something like 750,000 followers. Then you had the founder of the high-tech park, Valery Sapkala. Also, he'd been the former Belarusian ambassador to the United States and Mexico, so he was a well-known figure. And you've got Victor Babarika, a well-known philanthropist, former chairman of the Gazprom Bank of Belarus. Clearly, these two, Sapkala and Babarika, were from the establishment, not from the opposition. And Lukashenko immediately tried to get them out in some way or other to stop them from running. In Babarika's case, arresting he and his son for embezzlement and other charges. He was actually arrested twice, and the second time was more permanent arrest. And Sapkala was about to be arrested, fled the country, and he was barred from the election. So all these people were barred because Lukashenko realized things were quite different. And I think many people signed up to support Babarika. I mean, since the election, I've, I've sort of looked more and more at it. And Babarika seems to have been the people's choice overall, that he very likely would have won the election if it had been free and fair. And you could see then that this is a different opposition. These are not people who've been around since the 90s. They're new, they're young, they're talented, they're high-tech people, and the government can't, can't really deal with them anymore. And there are thousands and thousands of them. How does, <clears throat> for people watching Belarus and seeing Belarus in the news, how does, where does Svetlana Tsenkovskaya fit into all of this? Where does she come from and uh, what are her moves and why is she important in this story? Yeah, well, the next stage of the election was what to do after the arrests or the these people fleeing the country. And the three campaigns, the three notable campaigns, decided to join forces. So Svetlana took the place of her husband, and Veronika Sapkala took the place of her husband. And in Babarika's case, his campaign manager took over Maria Kalesnikava, um, she was a well-known musician. But none of these three were familiar with, with politics. They'd never campaigned before. The three women got together, which is kind of symbolic, since Belarus is not really a society where women are liberated, for example, or really enter politics. And they decided, between them, to support Sikhanovskaya as the candidate and take her campaign forward and it was it was extremely successful they went from city to city attracting large crowds I mean I think the crowds first of all were just bamboozled by the fact that there were three women on the stage there was music it was kind of carnival atmosphere they were playing Victor Soy's old song Changes which had been used by the um, Solidarity campaign in Poland back in the late 
80s and early 90s and you would get very large crowds coming out to hear to hear their talks and hear their speeches and their speeches were notably non-partisan they were not not anti-russian they were not anti-eu they were simply for the future of belarus and the campaign was very simple all these people have been arrested we want them to be freed and new elections and then glana would step down assuming that she'd won the election and when the vote was counted on august the 9th 2019 20 2020 lukashenko announced that he'd got more than 80 percent of the vote and this was regarded as simply ridiculous since then in in warsaw last september um i interviewed one of the former ambassador of belarus to argentina again with an, the same belarusian scholar i worked with previously and he told us that in the poll in the embassy Svikanovskaya won by an overwhelming margin and that every embassy that he'd canvassed as well was the same result massive win for Svikanovskaya and from the access we have to to limited balloting in Minsk we also know that she won a majority in, in every single one as well so it seems to me highly unlikely that Lukashenko won 80% in fact it's almost impossible and the likelihood is that Sikhanovskaya won in the first round. But it's not something that's possible to prove. So you could say this was an incredibly effective campaign. Since the election, the situation has changed quite a bit because Sikhanovskaya fled on election night. She fled to Lithuania, believing that she, her life was in danger if she stayed. Her children had already been whisked out because she felt that they might be taken away from her and her husband in jail as well. So that effectively removed the main opposition candidate from the territory of Belarus, which gave a distinct advantage to the, to the regime. The regime responded with a massive crackdown and a backup of extreme force and the threat of a Russian invasion if the opposition came, came out in the streets. But they were in the streets week after week after week and also on a daily basis. So you would get at the weekend something, a maximum, I'd say, of 200,000 people came out to Minsk the week after the election and the week after that. On Tuesdays, it would be women's, women's Day. Women would come out to protest in the streets very effectively. They'd have another day for pensioners to come out and protest. And this went on until the early winter, but once it got to be really cold, and people were afraid of losing their jobs if they stayed out in support. Um, I remember at the university, the state linguistic university, the students were actually locked out of the university for protesting. And the professors, those who supported the demonstrators, were fired. And those who stayed with the regime could keep their jobs. So this was all on a very partisan sort of level. And people were afraid of what would happen to them. If they, if they were unemployed, what would happen to their families. And also the protests were non-violent. And this is a big distinction from what happened in the Maidan in Ukraine. They were non-violent. On principle, they were non-violent. The regime used violence, the protesters didn't. So that made it more difficult perhaps to take power, but at the same time, 
they attracted attention from from the rest of the world for this type of demonstration. Ultimately, Lukashenko managed to stay in power. He actually inaugurated himself as president once again, but he was not recognized by, by most of the Western countries. And since then, Lukashenko has been in very close alliance with Putin. And Zikhanovskaya, by contrast, is well known in every capital of Europe and North America. And she has been to more places in the two and a half years since the elections in, and greeted leaders of different states than Lukashenko has done in, in almost 30 years. And it gives an idea of the sort of reception, but she's also gone more and more, I think, into the, let's say, Western camp rather than the Russian camp. And now quite often she's with the Belarusian flag and symbols when she's making when she's making a speech. And so she definitely, I think, moved to the West. She's not taken this line any longer that Russia can be kept out of things. Russia is an aggressor. And since the invasion of Ukraine, there's no question now that her movement is anti-Russian. Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it really helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Rachel Duffy. <laughs>